Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. COVID claims climb. More than 30 million U.S. workers now asking for government help. Healthcare hope, encouraging signs about a potential coronavirus treatment. And polarizing plans. Tech giants Musk and Zuckerberg have very different views on reopening. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Thursday. Great to have you with us as always. And today, as I mentioned briefly there, some encouraging signs to bring you on a potential treatment for COVID-19. Yes, it's very early days, but even Dr. Fauci seemed encouraged. All the details on that coming right up. And of course, not a moment too soon as we continue to track the economic fallout from the shutdown measures. As I mentioned, more than 30 million people in the United States have now filed for unemployment benefits since mid-March. That is a further 3.8 million people, families, in the past week alone. The trend is lower. That's one thing. But of course, it's still heartbreaking in numbers. More analysis on what we're seeing and what the look forward, uh, the hope is for the future. The hope here is that this will slow as economies reopen. That remains a focus, I think, for Wall Street, in addition to the future science and treatments to tackle the outbreak. As you can see, futures at this moment are losing a bit of ground. Right now, tech continues to keep us connected in person and drive stock markets higher. Facebook, Microsoft and Tesla all delivering solid results and are gaining, as you can see, their pre-market Facebook and Tesla, the outperformers. Europe, meanwhile, as you can see in the red, following the worst growth print on record for the Eurozone and the European Central Bank saying they will do more if necessary. Meanwhile, take a look at what we're seeing in Asia. The message, I think, seems to be, at least from the data there, that the recovery is complicated, as you would imagine. Japanese tech giant SoftBank has warned overnight that investment losses could top nine and a half billion dollars. While in China, the manufacturing survey sector data saw activity falling again in April after gaining in March. I said it complicated. Even Jay Powell at the Federal Reserve yesterday said he sees considerable medium term risk and that both Congress and the Federal Reserve may have to do more. He said now is not the time to worry about deficits. Wise words, I think. Let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, my, the hairs on my arms raise every Thursday. And when I see this economic data, 30 plus million Americans now claiming for help. 
It's just unimaginable. And this is Main Street pain. There's no question about it. In some countries, the government steps in and pays a big portion of the payrolls to keep people intact financially for their week-to-week and month-to-month budget. But in the United States, we have a different system where people have to apply for uh, jobless benefits. They have to wait for the states to approve them. Then they get the state benefits. And then the states have to figure out how to get uh, this federal stimulus money that's an extra $600 a week for these people. And you and I both know a lot of people haven't even received the first unemployment check yet. So this has been six weeks of true Main Street pain. We've been crunching the numbers, Julia, and when you look at the percentage of the labor force out of work, there are some states that are really hit much harder than other others. Hawaii, for example, 29% of its labor market has filed for unemployment benefits over the past six weeks. That's remarkable, but also not surprising since it's such a big tourism state. Kentucky, 28.8%. That's the home state of Mitch McConnell, who uh, uh, is is someone who's going to be very key to any kind of future stimulus that we see. Georgia, Michigan, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania, all with uh, big, big shares of their labor markets that have filed for unemployment benefits in the past uh, six weeks. So these are going to be governors and states uh, that are going to be really feeling the pain here and trying to get their aid, get aid to people quickly. There be a disparity too when you look at the individual states as we start to see economies reopen. Those that are more sales oriented versus those that have the ability for their workers to remain at home. I think that's going to be an interesting perhaps contrast between what we call blue or democratic states and, and Republican states here, Christine. But to bring it back to individual people, there's still a fear for workers going back to work. Am I safe? Is it the right time? This is going to be part of the challenge too. Am I better off taking government money? I, I, and I think there's, there's so many levels to that question if you are somebody who's out of work. You may not even had a couple of unemployment checks yet, and already you're thinking about when you're going to go back, but your kids aren't in school. Maybe you have someone in your, in your immediate family who has a pre-existing condition. Maybe you work in a job that is consumer-facing, and you've heard nothing about what the plans are going to be to keep you safe. You don't know what happens to you if you get sick and have to take a bunch of time off. I mean, there are a lot of questions, I think, that people are trying to figure out as they make this as they make this calculation. Everybody wants to get back to work. There's no question about that. But what is that working situation going to look like? Uh, you know, in Iowa, for example, and in, in, in Texas, I know that those governors have said, um, look, if you if you don't want to go back to work, but your job is available to you, you don't get your unemployment benefits anymore. You voluntarily left the labor market. And that's going to be something facing meatpacking workers, facing retail workers, facing uh, bar and restaurant workers, as those slowly begin to open up in some states. Yeah, and even for the strongest retailers, I mean, Amazon, we've had the conversation before. They said to their workers, you can take as much unpaid leave as right. you want if you are frightened. You only get paid if you're sick or you're quarantined in this case. Right. And that's the challenge even for the, the strongest retailers. Christine Romans, the challenges continue. Thank you. Now, let's talk about some good news. Hopes arising after some promising news about a possible coronavirus treatment. A study shows Gilead antiviral drug Remdesivir might help patients recover more quickly from the virus. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, says he expects the FDA will issue an emergency use authorization for the drug very soon. Elizabeth Cohen has all the details. Finally, after months of illnesses, deaths connected to the scourge that is COVID-19, we have some good news. Doctors have found a medicine that seems to work. It's called remdesivir. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut significant 
positive effect in diminishing the time to recovery. Remdesivir was a drug developed for Ebola, but it didn't work very well for that virus. It's never actually been on the market for any illness. In preliminary results of this new study, sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, more than 1,000 patients were randomly assigned to take either remdesivir or a placebo. It took the placebo patients 15 days to recover. It took the remdesivir patients 11 days to recover, a 31% improvement. Although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%, it is a very important proof of concept. Because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. Specifically, the drug blocks an enzyme the virus needs to replicate. Researchers can use that knowledge to create other drugs. There are a lot of other enzymes that the virus uses that are now going to be targets for this. Plus, four fewer days in the hospital means less time for something to go wrong, like a hospital-acquired infection. If you stay four more days in a hospital, intubate an event later, uh, you increase dramatically the chances that you're going to have nosocomial infections and a chance that you're going to die. Another advantage, it's thought that the drug has few side effects. Through the data we had in our trials in Ebola patients, we knew that the side effects were pretty minimal in, in patients and they were easily reversed when the medication was stopped. But researchers are clear this is not by any means a cure for coronavirus. I think that we are seeing a slight glimmer of hope here, but I worry that the exuberance is related to an old saying that there's no sauce better than hunger. And we want something so bad that even something that looks a little bit promising is getting blown out of proportion in terms of what it means for the number of lives that we're going to save here. They'll forge on. They'll keep looking at remdesivir and also try to find another drug or maybe a combination of drugs that will be even more powerful against COVID-19. Elizabeth Cohen, CNN reporting. Treatment not a cure there as you were hearing, but fingers crossed some help. All right, the European Central Bank says it's prepared to increase the size of its coronavirus stimulus package. This after the Eurozone's economy shrank at a record rate in the first quarter. Anna Stewart joins us now on the details. And uh, Anna, I know uh, Christine Lagarde, of course, the chief at the ECB, is speaking at this moment. But what was astonishing for me in these numbers was looking at the growth collapse in the likes of Spain and in France, two big countries in Europe. And compare that to what we saw at any point during the financial crisis. And this dwarfs that. Yeah, for France and Spain, contractions of over 5% for the first quarter. One economist this morning, Julia, saying it was a blizzard of depressing economic data. Frankly, the economy was in free fall at the end of March. Now, What isn't good, of course, is not only these dismal numbers, but the fact that really lockdown for most of these European countries hit mid-March, right at the end of the first quarter. So you can only imagine what that means for the second quarter figures that we will see. There were also some depressing numbers out of Germany in terms of unemployment that increased by 373,000 in April. Now, that would be a lot worse without the scheme, of course, for all those uh, workers who are furloughed those workers with shorter hours, they now have 10 million workers in Germany signed up for state aid. So just some of the depressing numbers we're seeing out this morning. Yeah, and Germany, arguably more able to bear the brunt of this than many of the other Eurozone nations. What has Christine Lagarde said so far about possible additional measures? Because they've done a lot, but the view is that they need to do more. 
and I think they will do more. Uh, Christine Lagarde is still speaking at the moment. A few announcements from the ECB today. I think the most interesting one was regarding the PET program. That's the Pandemic Asset Purchase Program. Currently, that has an envelope of 750 billion euros. That's 820 billion dollars. Now, what they've said on that so far, because that will run out in by autumn, I believe, uh, at the current rate of purchases. They've said it will run to the end of the year at the least, possibly longer for as long as the crisis persists. Plus, they said they are prepared to increase the size of the program and also adjust its composition, which makes you wonder whether she might start thinking about um, purchasing up so-called fallen angels, corporate debt that is below investment grade as a direct result of the pandemic. A couple of other things to note, uh, lots more liquidity, Teltro 3, uh, an easing of conditions, and Julia, a whole new acronym, a new series of Peltros. Uh, I'm sure plenty of viewers will be scratching their head on that acronym. It is Pandemic Emergency Longer Term Refinancing Operations. Plenty more, just helping banks, helping liquidity around the system. Julia? Yes, I lose track of all the acronyms, but that's one heck of a tongue twister to keep saying out loud. So perhaps we forgive them on that. Anna Stewart will continue to watch this space. Thank you so much for that. All right. On to a clash between the heads of Facebook and Tesla over coronavirus lockdown measures. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg expressing concerns about the risks of easing restrictions too soon. Tesla CEO Elon Musk, meanwhile, calling the stay-at-home orders fascist. Claire Sebastian has more on this. Now, Claire, let's be clear. A couple of differences between these businesses, both tech giants, one needing workers in place in a manufacturing facility, to be clear, Elon Musk, versus perhaps the ability to do work from a distance in the case of Facebook and the workers there. Neither uncontroversial, but Elon Musk is not afraid of sharing very controversial views. Talk us through what he said first. He did not hold back, Julia, on the uh, company earnings call, which was last night, as you said, calling the stay-at-home orders fascist. He said this was like forcibly imprisoning people in their homes. He called it an outrage. At one point, he said, give people back their goddamn freedom. So, you know, this is something we've seen from Elon Musk before, sort of slightly uh, colourful language on earnings calls. But he is still, he's clearly very frustrated, and not least because their Fremont uh, Gigafactory remains closed due to shelter-in-place orders in California. This is the beating heart of the business where most of their car production happens. He said this would be extremely harmful, uh, not only to Tesla, but, but to other companies down the supply chain. But look, Elon Musk has been sort of outside the mainstream, certainly mainstream health officials in his views on COVID-19 uh, for months now. I think we can pull up some of his tweets. Back on March 8th here, he tweeted, the virality of COVID-19, which he calls C-19, is overstated due to conflating diagnosis date with contraction date and over-extrapolating exponential growth, which is never what happens in reality. Unfortunately, we have seen exponential growth. Keep extrapolating and the virus will exceed the mass of the known universe. So clearly he is trying to say that all the panic is overstated. And he went back on Twitter. He was on Twitter a lot on this subject on March 16th, saying maybe worth considering chloroquine for COVID-19. Now, we know there was a lot of hope around that drug, particularly uh, from the president. But the FDA has since issued a warning that this can cause uh, serious heart rhythm issues among patients and shouldn't be used outside of a hospital context. So Elon Musk treading fairly close to the line with his views uh, on, on COVID-19. And, and it is controversial today because it is noise around this company, which meanwhile has withdrawn its guidance. It did post a profit, but it's very uncertain what's going to happen next, particularly uh, as the factory in California remains closed. Yeah, it's such a great point. I mean, you missed the uh, tweet on March the 13th where he said probably close to zero new cases in the United States, too, by the end of April, uh, based on current trends. Hmm. Um, 
yes. Just quickly flip to Mark Zuckerberg because he yeah. chose from the onset of this call to say reopening too soon was a real concern for him. Yeah, and not just from the call, uh, Julia, from the onset of this crisis, Mark Zuckerberg yeah. has been very conservative, very vocal on how, uh, you know, Facebook is, is essentially letting employees work from home. Uh, it's cancelled all uh, events and meetings with people more, with more than 50 people until June of next year. It really is trying to, to get ahead of this. On the call, he said that he worries reopening places too quickly will, uh, before infection rates have been reduced will almost guarantee, he said, future outbreaks and worse future economic and health outcomes. This, meanwhile, uh, while Facebook while showing some resilience in the face of this, they did see a steep decline in ad revenue in March. It's showing some stabilization in April. But again, they are very uncertain about what's to come. But perhaps, as you point out, more resilient in the face of this than, than the likes of Tesla because they don't necessarily rely on their workers being in the office. But then again, ad revenue, businesses spending, that is something where they are vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And I will just for completeness point out that the Elon Musk did say, look, reopen with care and appropriate mm. protection. And that comes down to businesses themselves once they're given the go ahead to protect their workers as best they can. So, um, yes, that will be the focus then for, for both of these companies, for all companies, of course. Yeah. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up next, though, on First Move, the CEO of Southeast Asia's biggest bank talks digitization in times of crisis and how they are helping their customers get through this. And later in the show, regrowing a business during shutdown, the founder of Farm Girl Flowers tells us how. Stay with us. We're back after this. We're back. Welcome back to First Move Live from New York, where stocks remain on track for a lower open this morning following another dismal update on America's ongoing jobs crisis. Initial jobless claims rising by another 3.8 million people last week. It means more than 30 million workers have filed for jobless benefits since the U.S. lockdown began in mid-March. So we're only talking six weeks. Futures were higher earlier after a solid batch of tech earnings from the likes of Tesla, Facebook and Microsoft. But it's clearly that news weighing. Oil continues to recover too from last week's historic drop. U.S. crude up another 12 percent. Actually, it's 10% now volatile as President Trump considers emergency assistance for the oil industry. Another indicator here of the challenges. Royal Dutch Shell today saying it will cut its dividend for the first time since World War II. Let's talk about somewhere else in the world. Southeast Asia's biggest bank, DBS, reporting its first quarter profit dropped nearly 30% from a year ago. That's the headline. This, as the Singapore-based bank sets aside almost 780 million US dollars in bad loans provisions. According to John Hopkins at University, coronavirus cases in Singapore have surpassed 16,000 individuals. Let's get the context here because I think this is important. DBS Group CEO Piyush Gupta joins us live from Singapore. So always a pleasure to chat to you and uh, glad to see you keeping well. I mentioned some of the headlines from your earnings report, but beneath the surface, customer engagement, I think, is key. Talk to me about the efforts and what you're seeing from customers at this moment. Uh, good to be um, on, Julia. Um, honestly, uh, we, like everybody has put aside some buffers for provisions uh, in the context of uncertainty with the pandemic. Uh, but the real story is that our uh, operating performance was actually very strong. Uh, our top line grew 13 percent. 
which includes a uh, uh, dismal march with the dropping interest rates. And the truth is that the top line growth is actually accompanied by fairly strong and robust uh, business volume growth. Uh, loans held up, but more importantly, activity in wealth management, the payment space, transaction services all robust. Uh, and we can only believe that part of it reflects the economy, part of it reflects the fact that we've been able to put together a whole suite of digital engagement tools, digital access tools for our customers. And there's no question, but customers are very rapidly moving digital in this environment. So that certainly helps a company like ours, which has been ahead on the forefront of the digital transformation. This was one of the things that stood out for me when I was with you talking to you in, in Singapore and the efforts that you've made over a number of years now to harness digitization and to make it easier for customers to transact with you, to take out loans, to to pay repayments of, of credit cards and things from a distance. Do you think this has been vital at this moment in maintaining that customer engagement? Because clearly small businesses in particular need cash and they need credit more than ever at this moment. Uh, frankly, this has been crucial. Uh, it's been crucial and helpful in two ways. One, certainly with lockdowns everywhere, it's hard for customers to get out. And uh, the capacity to be able to do your banking online is sometimes a lifesaver for them. We were actually able to accelerate many of our plans for this year. Uh, and double down, we introduced another dozen trade finance digital products. We introduced the capacity to do huge amount of account opening for migrant workers. Our equity volumes doubled in this uh, quarter, principally because we made it so simple for people to do equity trading. Uh, so it's been a lifesaver. But at the same time, it's also been good for our business because we've been able to increase market share uh, in things like the payment space and uh, online FX. Uh, so that's giving a boost to our economics as well. So it's a win-win on both sides. Pish, talk to me about the outlook here. How worried are you? I mean, Singapore is, has battled with the rising cases, particularly with the immigrant community here. We know this is having an economic impact. The shutdown measures, the, the measures to fight um, the caseloads here and to try and suppress the virus are having such a devastating impact. How worried are you about what recovery looks like in consumer behavior in that recovery? So, Julia, it's a tale of two parts. Uh, let me first give you the, uh, a little piece of good news, and that is North Asia. Uh, the facts are that North Asia is beginning to open up. Uh, Taiwan actually uh, didn't ever shut down. It's running at 100% plus. Uh, Hong Kong opened up in the last couple of days, so people are beginning to go out into the restaurants, Golf courses are opening up. Uh, China's opening up. 95% of our people are back at work uh, in China. Uh, and so the opening up of North Asia gives me a glimmer of hope. Uh, and in most of these countries, interestingly, there hasn't been a huge amount of preparation around transitions or phased opening. People just went and figured they had the crisis under control. Contract tracing was working. The number of cases came down to zero. So uh, they were in a position to open up rapidly. Now, Singapore, of course, is in a slightly different position. We had the virus under good control in what I call phase one. Uh, but phase two, with the uh, foreign uh, returnees and the immigrant labor, has created a new uh, set of challenges for us. Uh, but even phase two, I think the last two or three data has been to look more promising. I think we're beginning to get our arms around it. Now, your question about where we go from here is an interesting one. 
Uh, it's quite clear a lot of people like working from home, so there's no question that there will be a change in behaviors. People like interacting digitally, whether it's the banking activity or the e-commerce activity. Uh, at the same time, these, this is true in short periods of time. Uh, in Hong Kong, where we've already had this going for some months because of the protests, we ran a survey with our employees, and it's quite clear that beyond a certain amount of time, people miss the human engagement. They do want to get out, they do want to get back to work, to office, and do face-to-face -face interactions. So we're running a lot of experiments right now on the psychological impact of what it means to be divorced from people. Uh, and so to me, the jury is out. I think there will be change, but how much of the change is radical and how much of the change is nuanced uh, is something that just remains to be seen. Do you think you as a business leader and as someone who has to make decisions to protect workers will encourage your people to work at home more in the future, even when we get through this crisis? And, and do you think you will travel less as a result? I think uh, in a relative sense, the answer is yes. We'll probably travel less yeah. and more people will work more flexibly from home. Uh, but I do think there are three things that we still haven't dimensioned. One is productivity. Uh, so it's interesting that on a tactical basis, our productivity levels are holding up. We have no backlogs. Our volumes are high, but we are being able to handle them all from home. On the other hand, several of my people are already telling me that they think they might not be able to meet some of their uh, goals and targets for this year because working from home is just different. So productivity is something we'll have to think about. Uh, psychology and culture is something we'll have to think about. What does it mean to be part of a single company? What is the soul of the company if enough people are not aggregating together in common uh, meeting grounds and workplaces? And finally, there's an element of risk. There's, uh, I believe many of us have dialed up the risk we're accepting in this uh, working from home environment. Uh, all kinds of cyber risk, uh, phishing, hacking, and so on. Uh, in a business as usual world, you might want to dial back on some of that as well. So I do think that the uh, world will change, but uh, people will have to work their way through what the new optimum is. You raised so many great points, and I love that you bring up the psychology of what we're going through here. Um, it's a lesson in many things. Piyush, congratulations once again on the results and um, the way that you're serving your customers and protecting your workers, I know, too. Stay in touch, please, sir, and uh, stay safe to you and your family. Thanks very much. Good you do. Stay Thank safe. you. The Market Open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday. We're easing back after a solid day of trading Monday. The major averages rising some 2% or more. The Dow, as you can see, off just over 1%. What about the small cap stocks, though, those that focus more on the United States? They were standing tall yesterday, rising for a sixth straight session, up more than 6%, as you can see. But in the meantime, McDonald shares are weaker in early trading today. They said Q1 earnings fell some 17%. Net sales fell 6%, even this despite three quarters of their stores remaining open worldwide. They say they're witnessing, quote, dramatic changes in consumer behavior. In the meantime, more bad news for the airlines. Speaking of consumer behavior, American Airlines say it's lost $2.2 billion in the first quarter. They're suspending their dividend and stock buybacks. And they're eyeing some $12 billion in spending cuts going forward. United Airlines are going to be reporting later today. They've already warned about plunging profits too. 
The Director General, meanwhile, of the Global Airline Association, IATA, says that social distancing measures will make it almost impossible for carriers to make a profit going forward. If you neutralize the, let's say, the central seat uh, on both sides of the, uh, of the aircraft, uh, it means that you cannot fly with more than two-thirds of the, uh, of the aircraft for load factor is uh, below 65%. And in these conditions, uh, not, uh, there is no uh, airline which is able to fly and make money uh, uh, on, these, uh, on these flights. So it means two things. Either you, we cannot fly, or we have to increase the price of the tickets by at least 50 to 100%. Yeah, global airlines are aggressively cutting costs as air travel collapses. British Airways saying this week it will cut some 12,000 jobs. Now, here in the United States, the number of people filing for first-time jobless benefits rose by another 3.8 million people last week. That's more than 30 million doing so since mid-March. Mark Zandi is uh, from Moody's Analytics, and he joins us now. Mark, great to have you with us. Your assessment first on... Another 3.8 million people asking for help. Well, you know, it's one for the record books. Uh, 30 million uh, people have lost their job. And, you know, Julia, that uh, is just a part of the story, right? Because uh, probably another 30 million people have lost hours. They're, they're still employed, so they're not filing for unemployment insurance per se. They've lost hours and they've lost wages. So that's, let's say, 60, 70 million people. Just for context, uh, there were 150 million people employed before uh, the COVID uh, crisis. So that uh, gives you a sense of the magnitude, the scale of the damage here that's being done. How many of these jobs come back, Mark? By the end of this week, 31 U.S. states will begin the process of reopening in some form. How many of these jobs come back and how quickly and how many do you think remain persistent in that these people are going to be struggling for a long while? Yeah, good question. I, you know, my sense is that uh, we will get over the next two to three months as businesses reopen across the country, uh, roughly half those jobs back. Uh, and then it will be a slog to get the remainder back. It's not going to happen quickly. Uh, just to put it in uh, unemployment terms, uh, the unemployment rate will likely peak this month, the month of April, uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. And if you told me that by the end of the year we had an unemployment rate that was about half that, you know, 8 9%, I'd say that sounds about right. And to get back down to something you'd consider good, you know, 4 or 5% unemployment rate, that probably will take another couple, three years. So this is, this is, a, this is a process. It's not something that, you know, we're going to get the, all these jobs back very quickly. The other thing I, I'd point out is a lot of jobs, obviously, are in small business, you know, very small business. There's 8 million establishments across the United States. Four and a half million of them are establishments with fewer than four employees. Many of those companies will fail, uh, those small businesses. So even when businesses reopen, those won't, and those, therefore many people won't have jobs to go back to. So it's going to be a, a long process. Define many. In this case, if you're talking about small business, very small business failures. Well, uh, if you go back, just for, for context, if you go back to the financial crisis, uh, at the peak of the crisis, uh, business bankruptcies were, were running somewhere around uh, you know, 60,000. And then if you consider the failure, so you know, you know, businesses will fail and they don't go through the bankruptcy courts. 
Uh, you were probably talking 200, 250,000, uh, you know, in 2008, 2009. I'd say we're probably going to see double that, you know, half a million establishments uh, fail or go, uh, go uh, into bankruptcy over the course of the next 12, 18 months. It's frightening, Mark. You know, it was interesting. And as I was listening to Jay Powell yesterday saying, look, probably the Fed will have to do more, probably Congress will have to do more. And we saw stock markets continue to rise. And I I just wonder whether we come back to a question of one, is and are investors predicting some kind of V-shaped recovery? Because that's very different from the scenario that and the picture that you're painting here. Or can we not judge based on what we're seeing here because of all the liquidity and cash sloshing around? Yeah, all, all, all good explanations for why the stock market is up uh, while, you know, obviously Main Street is getting crushed. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, investors are probably getting ahead of themselves here. I mean, you know, clearly we are getting better news with regard to potential vaccines and therapies, and, and that's all good. Uh, and maybe they come... Uh, earlier than previously anticipated. So that's a good reason to feel more confident about the economy and, and to go out and buy stocks. But despite all that, I think investors are uh, discounting a lot of very good news. And they are putting a higher weight, a higher probability on a, a more V-shaped kind of recovery where the economy does come back quickly. All those jobs do come back quickly. Unemployment goes back to where it was quickly. I just don't see that. And so I think, you know, the script is still being written in the stock market, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's another leg down here at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. When you're talking about up to 70 million people impacted by what we're seeing, half of the workforce, um, yeah, the two things don't gel. Mark Sandy from Moody Edison Analytics, great to have you on and get to your insights. Stay safe. Sir, Thanks, Julia. As always. Thank you. All right. Speaking of small businesses, uh, coming up after the break, the U.S. small business loan program failed one entrepreneur who had to make devastating decisions, dumping her stock. Look at that picture. The CEO of Farm Girl Flowers tells us her story and what next after this. to first move here in the United States, the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, had a simple goal to keep small businesses, as you were just hearing there, afloat during the quarantine to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. At Farm Girl Flowers, sales wilted by 60 percent, forcing the CEO, Christina Stembel, to discard $150,000 worth of stock. She could not even give them away. You can see there. To make matters worse, she didn't get a PPP loan. She found bank lending difficult for her e-commerce model and felt aggrieved that big businesses were getting money from that pot. There is some good news, though, to this story. I'm pleased to say Christina managed to set up five new distribution centers in time for Mother's Day here in the United States. And uh, Christina joins us now. Christina, great to have you with us. We spoke to you Valentine's Day last year, and we were talking about the growth of your business, that you were building it. It's heartbreaking to see that pile of flowers. Talk to me about what happened, because you were in San Francisco and then the shutdown orders were called. Yeah, so when the shutdown orders were called, and hello, Julie, thanks for having Hi. me uh, again. Um, but when the shutdown orders were called, we had 12 and a half hours to make some really big decisions on what to do uh, with a facility, a distribution center, where 85 to 90% of all of our orders came from. And so, you know, we already had lots of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of flowers on 
trucks and on airplanes on their way to us for the orders that week. You know, we had close to 200 team members that were expecting to work that week. And um, 12 and a half hours just isn't a lot of time to make those decisions on, on how you're going to move forward. But that's what we had to do. Yeah, you can't, you can't give them away in that time. You've got no time. No. What about your workers? Because, I mean, you have around 200 workers, I remember. Yeah, so um, we had to make really, really tough decisions. And, you know, most people don't realize that companies like ours, where we actually make things with our hands, it's not something where you can shelter in place and work from home and still have a business that is in business. And so we had to furlough immediately uh, over 90% of our team members while I figured out what we were going to do moving forward. So we had 197 team members uh, at the beginning of that day on March 16th. And at the end, we had uh, six of us working to try to figure out what we're, what our next steps were. You know, it's interesting for me, you are the classic example of someone that should have been able to apply for the Paycheck Protection Scheme, get access to money, pay your workers, work out what you're going to do in the interim. And you really struggled. Talk to me about why you struggled so much. Yeah, I mean, I thought the same way that you did. I thought this is this was set up for companies like me and and many, many companies smaller than us. You know, I kind of I feel honored that I can have a voice for, you know, the taquerias and the coffee shops and the gyms and the you know bike shops and all of your neighborhood, uh, you know, main street businesses that they don't have a voice because it was built for companies like ours. And, you know, we're unfunded. We bootstrapped this entire company. You know, we, you know, just don't look like most of Silicon Valley or, you know, New York City. And I thought that it was built for companies like us, but it turns out it, it was, I think, intentionally uh, set up for companies like us, but that's not how it rolled out. And I think it was just some missteps on setting up safeguards and protections to ensure the companies that really needed it were the ones that received it. And I think that started from the government level of not putting in safeguards in place to make sure that that happened to the banks, putting it in banks' hands, which, you know, it's, it's obvious why it failed, honestly, because, you know, banks are going to put the interests of the customers they have the best relationships forward first, uh, not the ones like us that don't have even a relationship manager uh, to help take care of us because we never have enough money in the bank to make us a good relationship for them to have. And then to the CEO level, you know, CEOs should have the integrity if they have $100 million in the bank to know that this was not set up for them. And, you know, they should just not have gone for it knowing that. But instead, I heard from so many CEOs that really were looking at it like free money that they could just use for anything that they needed to use it for um, that were, you know, it, it was easy access for them. I know. And it wasn't for companies like us. And this was a challenge because it was very cheap money. You didn't even have to get forgiveness on 75% of it. It's 1% loan over annualized mm -hmm. over two years. It's really cheap money. And this is a critical point. Christina, very yeah. quickly, because we only have a minute. Mm -hmm. How have you managed to keep going? You, I mentioned that you'd set up five facilities. How have you managed that? And then I'll point our viewers to your website if they are in the United States, because you do do beautiful flowers. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so we just got to work really fast and we were able to bring back about 40 of our team members because our customers supported us so well. And after that 60% decline, we were able to rebound the very next week just by telling our story to our customers and they rallied around us. And then we got to work setting up five distribution centers in time for Mother's Day so we could supply the demand that was there, thankfully for us. 
Yeah, you see, this is the key. Yeah. So resilience yeah. in the face of adversity and actually crowdsourcing and funding and using social media, which you are clearly great mm -hmm. at. And I think you've uh, defended a lot of small businesses out there that also missed out here, which is key. Christina, keep in touch. I'm showing Wonderful. some very Thanks, pretty Leah. flowers here as well, very distracting. Mm -hmm. Christina Stamble, well done for fighting. Founder and CEO of Farm Girl Flowers. Stay well as well, please. Thank you, All right, getting back to business is a challenge wherever you are in the world. The financial hub of the Middle East, Dubai, eased coronavirus curfews over the weekend, despite the Emirates having the region's deadliest outbreak after Saudi Arabia. Since Friday, diners have been able to return to restaurants. Shopping is an option, too, with one of the world's largest malls opening its doors once again. But it won't be the low-key experience we once knew. The mall is reopening at 30% capacity, Temperature screenings and masks are mandatory and social distancing must be observed. John Defteris is there for us. John, this is a look at the future, I think, for all of us, wherever we are in the world. Talk me through what you're seeing specifically and, and what the word is there. Well, it's interesting you say the, a look into the future because mm. if you came here to Dubai Mall, even during a Ramadan period, it wouldn't be this eerily quiet. So it's different than it's been in the past. Uh, and, and Julia, outside of Ramadan, which the first two weeks are kind of traditionally slow, we're looking at visitors of 250,000 during a weekday and up to 350,000 on the weekend. Uh, they're going to try to cap that at 75. That's their plan and they're doing it. You talked about the screening that they're doing and I can see it here on the temperatures, limiting the flow uh, to 30% even on the weekend of normal uh, capacity. And even visitors above 60 years old are not allowed into the facility or children between three and 12. Uh, and there is a method behind this approach here. They're trying to ease their way into, into business, if you will, and send a signal to the outside world they're not overreacting, not rushing to get back into business, uh, Julia. But it was crystal clear, the feedback I was getting from a major retailer, even the chairman of the group that runs the Dubai Mall, uh, they were saying they don't expect a real robust recovery, get this, until the second half of 2021, with a lot of fits and starts along the way. Let's take a listen. I expect that we really have to go gradually moving upward towards the end of the year if there was no major outbreak there and then probably into first quarter, into first quarter next year. When I you think start to recover. I think, and then mid, mid next year, maybe we are back to normal. That's pretty conservative, Julia, mid next year. And, you know, we had this conversation earlier in the week. The International Monetary Fund is suggesting we could have two to three economic shocks because of the boomerang of the COVID-19. Uh, and that's what they're planning for here in the Middle East as well. Yeah, so many unknowns. It's actually interesting. We're just watching there and I can see people walking behind you. So there are people there. It's just going to be it's just going to be slow progress, I think, as people get comfortable with, with being back out there and interacting with people, even if you're masked up. Uh, I, I think that is the case, uh, Julia. Yeah. But, you know, what surprised me the most, and I spent the entire day here, uh, it starts off slow and it'll gather momentum because it's open until uh, 10 o'clock in the evening. And one hour from now, they'll break fast for uh, iftar. So there'll be people using the food and beverage. But they have normally 200 food and beverage outlets. So they're easing those way back into uh, to business as well. And don't forget here, they had the triple whammy. Uh, and I'll say what that is. It's the COVID-19 that undermined consumer spending. The Gulf Airlines used to bring all the tourists. They've been grounded like many places in the world, but they're losing $250 billion, the Middle East exporters in 2020. That is such a shock 
that actually filters into consumer spending. So you can see why the head of Imar Group, uh, Mohammed Al-Abar, is being that conservative on the recovery going forward. Yeah, don't underestimate the impact here of lost tourism for all of these kind of um, places. John Defteris, mm-hmm. thank you so much for uh, shedding light on that. It's going to be uh, interesting mm-hmm. to watch. Coming up after the break, from billboards to little cards, fundraising veteran Tom Moore celebrates his birthday with a big thank you from Britain. And as you'll see, literally, the sky's the limit. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Two Royal Air Force Spitfires in the skies above the home of Tom Moore, who you might remember from earlier this week and who marked his 100th birthday today. What a sight. The military thank you comes after the war veteran raised more than $39 million for Britain's National Health Service, an outstanding achievement for a truly outstanding hero who's also now referred to as Colonel Moore after receiving an honorary promotion from a captain, as Anna Stewart reports. That's only a small part of his celebrations. Tens of thousands of cards fill this school hall, a makeshift sorting office near the home of someone very special. The message is simple and heartfelt. Happy birthday to you. You're a hero. War veteran Captain Tom Moore captured the world's heart when he walked 100 laps of his garden ahead of his 100th birthday, raising tens of millions of pounds for NHS charities. And since crossing that finish line, Congratulations. he's been non-stop. The Nightingale Hospital is open. Opening a Nightingale Hospital in Northern England, appearing on numerous TV shows. Seems to have more energy than I do. I'm enjoying every minute of it. He's even had a train named after him. And recently he became the oldest person to ever hit number one in the record charts. And In honour of his birthday, the British Royal Mail are marking every letter sent in the UK with a special postmark. Of course, this week, thousands of those letters are destined for him. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. So to Colonel Tom and everyone out there raising money and saving lives and singing to our healthcare heroes, that was very cute. First Move salutes you. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.